I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, If you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, October 22nd, 2012. Mm-mm. I feel like I'm going to need to ease into the week here. at one of my segments. Still can't believe I'm doing this segment. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of just weird i mean what's the what are the what's that phrase the kid whack it's there there's a lot of whack theology out there it doesn't even sound right <laughs> just you know you, you, i teach youths and uh, they have a different vocabulary and i seem to always be learning new and strange words from them anyway so yeah there's a lot of whack theology out there and apparently that means like lame or something like that anyway <sighs> so it, it's it's monday and uh <laughs> Gotta tell you, today, getting into the saddle here at uh, Fight... No, wait a second, that's the wrong metaphor. I'm a pirate. Yeah, yeah d- <laughs> swimming out to the pirate cave <laughs> as I'm in landlocked central Indiana. Um, just the the swim was like one of those ones where it's like, oh, no, i got to be back in studio. I just... It's, there are times when uh, this job just wears me down. It wears me down psychologically, spiritually, and uh, it's it's not easy. I mean... I'd be handling a lot of, well, really bad, dangerous stuff. And so, you know, I try to mix it up a little bit. But uh, this weekend, I completely unplugged. That's all I can say about it. I just totally and 100% unplugged. I, in fact, normally I spend my weekend studying. This weekend, did barely any studying. And I don't know if that's a good thing. (laughs) It's just one of those times where I just said, I am just so tired. I, I, my, I feel weary down to my bones. Anyway, 
All right, so let's uh, talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Yeah, I, just, I feel like I'm going to need to get right into it, but um, there's a few actually. Uh, there's a few things that we could be covering here. Number one, I have got a um, a devotional thought from Rick Warren entitled "Face Your Faults with Courage." Face your faults with courage, and this is one of those ones. It's like, um. Man, it's like, could you try harder to avoid making sure that somebody wouldn't actually hear the biblical gospel? I mean, that's that's kind of how I put it. But anyway, it's uh, from the PurposeDriven.com website, Daily Hope with Rick Warren. And uh, what's the date? See if there's a date on this one. I don't see a date. But uh, it was from October of this year. It is called Face Your Faults with Courage. And um, first time I've seen... Um, Rick Warren used 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, but he skipped verse 9. We'll talk about that here. And you see, half a discernment, or not half a, but part of discernment is, is oftentimes not necessarily listening for what's there, but knowing the Bible well enough to know what was omitted. To know, that, see, that's, that's a critical thing. In fact, when you uh, study uh, Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, okay, um, in fact, in fact, I'll do this. Uh, I know I talked about this recently, but it's worth reviewing because Satan's technique is is well diabolical. <clears throat> I know that sounds redundant, but it, it is. And uh, and so, in fact, let me let me read this. Matthew chapter four. I'll start at verse one. So Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. He has heard the voice from heaven proclaim, You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Okay? Um, Yeah, so there's God the Father identifying the one whom he is well pleased with. Not me, not you, not anybody on the planet, but the one he's well pleased with, Jesus. Okay? A God in human flesh, the virgin-born, Son of God. He's pleased with him. Okay? Because... Up to this point and then beyond, Christ has still not sinned, right? A perfectly sinless, righteous life. So he hears the voice from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am all pleased. And what's Satan's tactic? Well, Satan is a one-trick pony. And uh, his first move is, is like the same. If he was a chess player, um, then uh, Satan would always open with the same opening. And uh, when I when I played chess regularly, I, I preferred the king's gambit opening myself. But, um, you know, but uh, the thing is, is that there's strengths and weaknesses to each of those things. And, you know, it, I don't know if it's really a good thing to always open with the same move. But anyway, or moves, but Satan does. OK, and so his move is to get you to doubt, 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 doubt the word of God. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, uh, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, notice he says, If you are the Son of God. Uh, Jesus answers with, just fires back with, with, with Scripture. And I think that's important for us to realize that... Uh, Jesus, when he was faced with the temptation, temptations thrown at him by the devil, I mean, this is a showdown, okay? Uh, th- th- I mean, this is a showdown. And up to this point, Satan had won every single one of these encounters, okay? Um, things didn't go so well for Adam and Eve, and, and tempting human beings from then on out was just pretty much a piece of cake. Not one single human being up to this point had been able to go toe-to-toe with the devil um, and uh, and, well... 
win. And so Jesus wins here. But notice what he does. He doesn't he doesn't like tap into his like superpowers or something like that. You, you know, it, this is not it, in fact what he does is he fires back with the word of God. You know, Paul's description of the armor of God in the Bible, the scripture being the sword of truth come, you know, come to mind here. I mean, this is something that we all could do. Okay, so say, uh, Jesus reply, replies, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds or comes from the mouth of God. Now, the second one is the one I want to key in on. I, I know I've taught on this recently, again, but it's not. It's worth a review. So the devil took him into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, here we go again, throw yourself down, for it is written. And watch what he does here. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you, dot, 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 and on their ha- and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Okay, so part of discernment, part of discernment is not only knowing what somebody is saying, but being keyed into God's word well enough to know what somebody is omitting when they're teaching God's word. Yeah, it's it, it it's a dangerous world out there. And Bible twisters, it's not only what they say, oftentimes it's what they don't say. So here, um, Satan decides he's going to go toe-to-toe with Jesus by quoting Psalm chapter 91, verses 11 and 12, and oh, he accidentally omitted a piece of it. Okay? Psalm 91, 11 and 12 reads, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Um <clears throat> Yeah, Satan omitted the to guard you in all your ways part, and so he omitted some of the data in order to create the impression that God's word basically said that uh, that the Son of God could you know pretty much do whatever stunts he wants. It doesn't matter what he does; he could throw himself off the off of Mount Everest if he wanted, and angels would come to his rescue and fly him back to Jerusalem. You see, that's not exactly what Psalm 91 was saying. And so Jesus counters back with the word of God, you'll notice. And it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So part of discernment, this is the point I'm I'm trying to make here, is knowing what the Bible says well enough so that when somebody omits information, omits a key piece of a passage... And, and that's what a lot of these Bible twisters do. They're hopscotching all over the Bible. Uh, and they're omitting particular pieces on purpose because they're spinning their own theology. They're they're rolling their own theology. They're And they're smoking their own theology, too. Uh, you get the, that impression. But So the idea here is, is that you need to be so conversant with the real thing. And it, this can be done. You, you can be conversant with the real thing, with what the Scripture says, to the point where when somebody omits key data, you go, wait, 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 no, 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 that passage says more than that. Why did you leave that little bit out? So, yeah, that's part of what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. Help, you know, drill into your mind just good, solid, biblical discernment. And uh, and so that requires us to listen to what people are saying that's false 
and uh, as well as uh, listening to uh, you know in you know teasing out what the Bible really says by looking at things in context. That's why context, context, context is so important. Um, if you follow the context, context, context rule, when somebody omits a piece of data from a biblical passage, you'll you'll immediately know it. So you know, so you're sitting there going, well, of course, I I don't really know the Bible all that well yet. Okay, that's okay. So when somebody quotes you a Bible passage, take it and read five to ten verses ahead and read a few verses after so that you know what the immediate context of that passage is and you can read it for yourself and then you'll be able to see. So anyway, you get what I'm saying here. But uh, these are these are very treacherous times that we live in where major, major popular uh, Christian you know, and I'm, I have to put air quotes around it, uh, leaders and authors and pastors and teachers, um, they have absolutely, um, they've, they, they, they have no desire to teach sound doctrine. They want to teach something new. They want to teach something that's hip and relevant and gets people's attention and, and gains them popularity and maybe a lot of money. Um, but sound doctrine gets in the way of uh, of their endeavors, and so they're not really interested in that. And so it's part of the reason why we do what we do. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. For sure, we've got a, a Rick Warren update. Again, a recent devotional put out by him called Face Your Faults with Courage. And this is a, 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 a lesson in discernment with finding the thing that's missing. I've got a Nicole Crank update. Um, where she literally, no joke, uh, tries to find spiritual meaning and a spiritual message um, in a wart that she had on her finger. I am, <laughs> I can't remember the last time <laughs> I have heard anybody try to find spiritual significance in a wart. But uh, Nicole Crank, this is uh, David Crank's uh, wife. Uh, she's also a pastrix. There at uh, Faith Church in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. So we're going to be listening to her exegete her her wart. <laughs> I just can't make this stuff up anymore. Yeah, hopefully ho- now. Just now, listen. I got to let you all know this, okay? If someone is exegeting their wart, context, context, context is not the rule that you go to. <laughs> no, when somebody's exegeting a wart. The uh, the the discernment rule you want to uh, d- default to is sola scriptura, yeah. So you know, as as deep and profound as any spiritual significance from a wart may be, um, sola scriptura at that point will save you there because then you don't have to go through the whole idea of context, 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 and then trying to figure out what the wart was saying in like the Greek or the Hebrew or anything like that. You could just say, ah, yeah, no, that's outside of the Bible. We'll skip that. And uh, and then if uh, you've uh, been on any kind of social media in the past few days, um, then you know that there is a video that has gone viral. Some guy by the name of Pastor Phil Snyder um, apparently uh, did put a, appeared at a city council meeting or something like that, um, you know, pertaining to the uh, gay marriage issue. And um, pull the fast one, and so we're, we'll take a listen to that um, to that video, and explain to you what's going wrong there. And then, in hour number two of fighting for the faith, um, you know, there's so many seeker-driven churches have decided to go full-blown Halloween in their um, in their theming for the month. Um, we've got a sermon called "How to Hug a Vampire," um, how to hug. A vampire, and uh, oh man, it is a train wreck. So we'll be listening to that in hour number two, and 
and uh, seeing if there's anything that can be salvaged from said, quote, sermon. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and eh, i got to make a decision here. All right, looking at my time, I think what we're going to do first, we'll go ahead and do our Rick Warren update first. Purpose, it keeps you going strong like a car with a full tank of gas. Everyone else has a purpose, so what's mine? Oh, look, here's a penny. It's from the year I was born. It's a sign. I don't know how I know, but I'm going to find my purpose. I don't know where I'm going to look, but I'm going to find my purpose. Going to find out. Don't want to wait. Make sure that my life will be great. Gotta find my purpose before it's too late. Uh huh. Yeah, that's our uh, Rick Warren update music. Find my purpose. All right, so from the purposedriven.com website, I'm looking to see if there's a date on this one, and there isn't. I just. I I saw it a few days ago and uh, flagged it for you know review, but uh, from the, uh, the 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 name of the daily devotional there at uh, purposedriven dot com uh, is called Daily Hope with Rick Warren. So this was written by Rick Warren. Yeah, okay, and so uh, it, it's entitled "Face Your Faults with Courage." Face your faults with courage. I'm, Whew, yeah, it sounds like some sage advice there. So if you have a fault, you, 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 apparently the Christian thing to do is to face it with courage. And here's the verse that he uses to support this. So the verse, this devotional thought from Rick Warren begins with, quote, If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. First John chapter 1, verse 8. Oh, wow. See, he quotes the Bible there. I mean, wow. So let's find out what he thinks we should do then in light of this verse taken out of context. Rick writes, he says, many of us wear masks of some sort. Okay. um, I've worn a few masks like around Halloween time. Is that what you're talking about? Anyway, he says, we don't want anyone to see the real us. We don't want anyone to see our faults. Often we try to cover up our faults and our mistakes in one of two ways. Okay. Number one, we blame others. Yeah, I've seen people do that. I've done that myself. He says, Adam did this after he ate from the tree. He blamed Eve, who blamed the snake. And we've been blaming others ever since. We don't want to admit our faults, so we turn the attention onto someone else. We just want to get the focus off of us. Okay, so blame others. Okay. And or we make excuses. So number two, you make excuses. We pretend nothing is wrong. Life's going great. We've got it all together. Unfortunately, pretending doesn't work. See, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. So you have to face your faults in order to be freed from them. Face it head on and own it. I did it. I've been arrogant. I in how I've treated people. I have been a good haven't been a good father or a good husband. I've been a poor leader. It's it's just time that you said it. So don't use the word but at the end of of the confession. Just don't say it's not a big deal. But try to tell people it's really a, a, that you know what's going on. It's a strength. So just admit it and then you can be free. 
So um, there you go. Now, if you know your Bible, and even if you don't, just apply the, our, our three simple rules for sound biblical exegesis. This will save your bacon here. Um, if you know your Bible, then you know something's wrong with this whole thing, okay? I'll lay this out in a minute here. But if you don't know your Bible well enough to have detected it, all you would have had to do is open up your Bible to 1 John chapter 1 and put some context around the verse that Rick Warren quoted. Now here, listen, this might come as a shock to some of you listening here because uh, you, you haven't been listening for very long. But anytime Rick Warren quotes a verse to you, pause the tape, pause the podcast, pause the sermon, pause the whatever. Anytime Rick Warren quotes a verse to you, you got to stop him and you need to put it back in context. And you will be shocked. 99% of the time, there's about 1% of the time he he doesn't engage in Bible twisting. 99% of the time when Rick Warren quotes a verse, he's twisting it, absolutely mangling it. Okay, And this is, well, this falls under the 99% here. All right, so how is he doing this? Well, let me first ask you a question, okay? Sin, okay, that's the topic right now, sin. We all are sinners, each and every one of us, me, you, everyone listening, okay, we're all sinners. What's the biblical solution to sin? What's the solution, okay? Now, if the solution to sin is face your faults with courage, then that would be the gospel, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified when they face their faults with courage. That's what the biblical passages would say, right? For, uh, right or, or God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, so that whosoever faces his faults with courage will have eternal life. Is that what the Bible says? No. Nothing of the sort. And neither does First John. So what we're going to do is we're going to put First John uh, chapter one verse eight back into context. I need to open up my computerized Bible to said passage here. Hold on, First John chapter one, okay? I'll, and this because it's an epistle, we'll just put it. it we'll put it in the immediate context. I'll go to verse five. <clears throat> Are you ready? First John chapter one verse five. This is the message that we've heard from him, and we proclaim to you that God is light; in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. Truth, But if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Notice here, verse 7 mentions how the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So there in verse 7, so Rick Warren quoted verse 8, from the New Living Translation, he quoted verse 8, but he missed verse 7 and he missed verse 9, which I find rather fascinating. So verse 7 says that the blood of Jesus okay, cleanses us from all sin. Now here's verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what's the solution to sin? The forgiveness of sins. Where does the forgiveness of sins come from? Well, from the blood of Christ. So the solution, when we as Christians sin, okay, when we sin, the solution is not 
facing our faults with courage. No. The solution is confessing our sins and being forgiven and having the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse us from all sin and all unrighteousness. That's the solution, is it not? Well, that's what verse 7 and verse 9 of 1 John discuss. And you'll notice that in the Face Your Faults with Courage devotional by Rick Warren, neither verse 7 nor verse 9 were brought to bear regarding what we as Christians ought to do with our sin or our faults. So here we have Rick Warren quoting verse 8, omitting verse 7 that talks about how the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, and omitting verse 9 that says, but if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we're left with basically something that you've got to do. Okay, Now, see, when you know the truth here, you know what's omitted? You, be, you can begin to see just the deception that's going on here. So Rick Warren says, If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves, not living in the truth. So many of us wear masks of some sort. We don't want anyone to see the real us. We don't want any of the, uh, people to see our faults. Often we try to cover our faults with mistakes in one of two ways. We blame others or we make excuses. So you have to face your faults in order to be freed by, uh, from them. Face it head on and then own it. Is that the solution offered in First John? No. The solution offered in 1 John is that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins, that the blood of Christ frees us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. So the solution offered in 1 John is forgiveness. What Rick Warren offers for those of you out there who are sinning, that would be all of us, is that we just face our faults head on with courage. Um, But if you do that, well, you're still in your sin. If you face your faults head-on with courage, you are still unforgiven, right? You haven't really repented or confessed anything. So there's Rick Warren, um, devotional thought, face your faults with courage, and the the discernment uh, necessary to, well, figure this out, you either need to know your Bible well enough to know what he omitted or em- employ the three rules of context, context, context. Put that verse back into context to, to see if the solution he offered is what the Bible teaches. What we what did we discover? Uh, when it comes to sin, Rick Warren hasn't offered us the forgiveness of sins or the blood of Christ that cleanses us. He's only told us to face our fears with courage. Just, just man up and own it. And that's not what 1 John teaches, nor is that a Christian solution. So there you have it. More evidence that Rick Warren, I mean, he is, with each passing day, I am more convinced that he is literally blazing a trail far off the Christian reservation. I mean, he's out there freewheeling it in Never Never Land. But as far as sound biblical doctrine and Christian teaching, yeah, Rick Warren, I think, gave that up a long, long time ago. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button, by the way, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Okay, then, uh, Mr. Haas, the results of the test have come back. What are they, Doc? Uh, not good. That's what. What do you mean? What's wrong with me? Where do you want me to start? I- is that all mine? That and the seven other stacks of paperwork just like it. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, indeed. I guess we can start off with the good news. Okay. You don't have cancer. Oh, thank God. Funny that you'd say that. Why? Now, don't get ahead of yourself. As I said before, you don't have cancer. And that's about it for the good news. Huh? Moving on. This here is an x-ray of your esophagus and your stomach. Wait! What are those? Please, try to stay calm while I explain the prognosis. What? For the sake of contrast, I've included the same type of x-ray from a healthy patient. Oh, no. Oh, no, indeed. Now, I've seen my fair share of cases like these, but nothing has ever compared to what you've got going on. Uh, are those... Yes. Those are pentagrams emblazoned on the unprotected skin of your esophagus. Is that the reason For that... your heartburn? Oh, no. Not even close. If you look closely, we've identified this black lump in your stomach as brimstone. That is the cause of your heartburn. And no, Nexium won't fix it. How can this be happening to me? Well, to put it simply... You've contracted a religiously transmitted disease. But how? Well, there are many ways. One of the more common ways is to preach heresy and to openly accept the teaching of the devil and his ways. But, 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 but... Oh, trust me, this is only the tip of the iceberg. Do you know how much sulfur we found in your colon? You found what in my what? Sulfur. You see, it's normal to find in some of the victims of possession. But you were something extraordinary. We found three whole pounds of it in there. Three pounds? Don't even get me started on the pH of your blood, though. Hoo-wee! There was some nasty stuff. Melted right through our equipment when one vial exploded in the centrifuge. Yes, sir. You've got yourself a really nasty religiously transmitted disease. What am I going to do? For starters, I would stop spewing those lies you pass off as sermons down at your church. That should start to alleviate some of the burning sensations. I- On that note, I would suggest some good old-fashioned expository teaching because the only thing that's going to fight off this disease is the Word of God. I can't believe what I'm hearing! That's obvious. You certainly won't be able to unless the Father himself draws you. There's got to be an easier way! i got to ask you, have you considered baptism? What's that got to do with anything? Oh, I don't know. Circumcision of the heart not done by human hands for the forgiveness of your sins. Ring any bells? You're not being helpful! Well, if you don't want to do any of that, I guess all I can do is fill out your prescriptions. Here you go. What? What's a three-month supply 
the vision lack's supposed to do. Oh, trust me, you're going to need it. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, you need to know your Bible. If you don't, you're going to be deceived. Satan's emissaries work by twisting it. That means you need to actually know it. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions. In order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, We can you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Now, when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute a small amount of money, $6.95 every month. That's it. It's super simple, just $6.95, and that helps us pay the bills and and you know keep the lights on and all that kind of stuff. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, maybe you'd like to give more than that, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office. Office box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, I got to warn you here. Um, yeah, in fact, I actually feel like the ethical thing to do here is to actually run our warning 
for this next segment. Hang on. Warning. Fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. All right, let's play our uh, David Crank update music for his wife, Nicole. Here, here we go. our uh, David Crank update music. We will use that for when we do an update with his wife, Nicole. Now, Nicole is um, is a, a pastrix there at uh, Faith Church in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Her uh, husband is the head pastor. And um, she recently um, uh, was preaching, if you can call it that, from the stage. And no joke, she um, took time during her message to exegete the spiritual significance of a wart that she had on her finger. Yep, here's uh, Nicole Crank to explain the spiritual significance of said wart. God is always speaking to us. God is always whispering to us. He's always telling us which way to go. He's always telling us, hey, go down the steps and go over to the right and look Susie right in the eye. Because she needs this message. Or go up and go to the left and get loud and make sure you get on that left side because there's somebody. He's telling us what to do all the time. How many like you? How many in the room have kids? Oh, yeah. How many of y'all tell your kids what to do loud enough that they could hear you? <laughs> you know, I have a little joke about me and Ashton. And my joke about Ashton is that she can't hear anything I tell her to do. Until I say it at this level. And then she can hear me. I can say, hey, Dave, should we go get some ice cream? Mom, I want ice cream. I'm hungry for ice cream. I really do. 
I can also say, hey, Ashton, would you mind unloading the dishwasher for me? Hey, Ashton, could you unload the dishwasher, please? Now, trust me, this is all the setup. She's laying foundation so that she can exegete her wart. No joke. Ashton! 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 Mom? Next time, I'm going to just whisper the word ice cream and then tell her what to do. That's kind of like God working with us. He doesn't scream at us. He's not going to. That's not how he operates. That's not how he's ever operated. And he's not going to start that way now for us just because we're busy or just because we're distracted or just because we have a lot going on. Or here is the challenge I'm going to present to you tonight. Just because he's trying to deliver our miracle a way that we didn't think he was going to. Mm-hmm. So God's trying to deliver a miracle in a way that we just didn't even think it, was, it would be miraculous. Got it? There was a wart on my finger. Yeah, okay. You know, I don't know with these cameras. I think this is the last service we're going to shoot with these cameras, and I hope not to freak you all out. I'm going to go to Tim Wartell right now, and I'm going to try and show you this hole in my finger so that you all can see it because I had this wart on my finger. Let's see if this works out to where you can see it or not. Wow, that's an attractive shot. See, right here, you can't really see it. There's still a hole in my finger right there. I had this wart, and I had this wart on my finger for probably two, three, four months before I ever really even paid attention to it. Do you guys ever have something start messing with your life just a little bit? And it takes two, three, or four months for you even to get aggravated enough about this thing that's aggravating you to talk out loud about it. So finally I went to David and I said, you know what? I got this word on my finger. I've had it for like months. I'm going to use my faith and get rid of it. That's what I'm going to do. You're going to use your what (laughs) to do what? So I prayed, I cursed it. I believed I received when I prayed. (laughs) (laughs) You, you curse the word. <laughs> declared the blood of Jesus over it. After all, he died on Calvary for. <laughs> you, you decreed the blood of Jesus over your wart. I, th- <laughs> I think that's a misapplication of the blood of Christ. Our soteria, our safety, our soundness, our wholeness, our nothing missing, nothing broken. That's the, that's the translation of the word soteria. So if he died for nothing missing... Oh, good night. Nothing broken, he sure didn't die for a wart to be on my finger. So- <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> How's the saying go? Yeah, like, evil can evil could not jump that chasm of logic. Wow. Even in a rocket uh, car. So I prayed over it, and a month went by. I prayed over it, and two months went by. I prayed over it. And a third month went by. Apparently you don't have enough faith. You, your cursing powers apparently are not up to snuff. And Dave said, you still got that stupid word on your finger. I said, I know. I prayed over it and it won't go away. Do you see the face I said that with? Did you hear the tone I said? I know. Huh? I was I'm kind of confused. I don't know. And Dave, Yeah, your cursing powers just are not up, not what they used to be. Dave know? said, Nick, don't. 
mess with something stupid and little like that and try and get it by your faith just that way, go have the stupid thing frozen off. I'm like, yeah, when in doubt, if your faith in cursing powers are not good enough, go and have the wart burned off. <sighs> All right. Doggone it. I pray the prayer of faith for everybody else at church. All kinds of people get helped by God. Why can't God take this stupid word off my finger? You know what? I don't even know if I should be praying the prayer of faith on that stage anyway. I mean, they should probably get somebody up there who could get healed of a wart. It's not like we're talking about a whole body thing or something serious. Talk about a wart. Okay, freeze it off. So I went to the doctor. They froze it off one time. They froze it off two times. They froze it off a third time. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's one stubborn word. I mean, it, it's a curse-proof, prayer of faith-proof, freezing-proof wart. Wow. And third time's a charm. My wart had a baby wart next to it. <laughs> and then it reproduced. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, what... What is a word of faith heretic to do? Froze it off a fourth time. And I froze it off a fifth time. Yeah, that is one resilient wart. Wow. So what was the message God was sending you? I just can't wait to hear it. Now, you can only do this process like once every 30 days. I am still praying over this thing. I'm still cursing this thing. Now I'm telling my husband, I cursed that stupid word. It's going away in Jesus' name. I'm not having it. And then a baby word, that's, ooh, that just aggravated me. Now I'm really stirred up on the inside. And he just looks at me and he shakes his head. Well, the stupid two warts are there. And now at this point, I'm starting to get embarrassed. Embarrassment is actually a form of pride. You know, I want to be a spiritual woman. I want to be spiritual. Oh, dear Jesus, I want to be spiritual. I'm a pastor and everything. Oh, God, I got a Bible. Yeah, no, there's no such thing as a female pastor. You're not a pastor. Bible in my bedroom, and I got a Bible in my living room, and I got a Bible in my bathroom. I recommend you don't touch that one. And I keep an extra Bible at church, and I got Bibles, and I read them all. God, I'm spiritual, right? How come I can't get this word off my finger just between me and you, God? You know, Nicole, um, I'm worried about you, and, and here's the reason why. Is because, well, you, you don't look like you're all that much younger than I am, and, you know, I hate to break it to you, but um, you're you're about ready to peak, and, and then it's going to be like downhill to the grave from there. If you don't already have gray hair, it's coming. Just give it a couple of days. Um, and wrinkles and stuff like that, yeah, that's coming. And, and you know, you lose your body tone, all that kind of stuff. You know, so here's the deal. I mean, it, you're you're at this point freaking out and having a crisis of faith over a wart, which should tell you something that your little magic tricks and your little witchcraft of you know naming it, claiming it, and all that kind of stuff. That ain't what the Bible teaches. That should be a heads up to you. Um, you know, I don't know what you're going to do when you really start to seriously if feel old okay it's coming just give it some time i kept wanting god to heal me the way i wanted god to heal me uh-huh and my husband had a great idea and i got a baby wart 
So we go on a trip with some friends, and we're out and about and running around that day, and we're talking about different things in life, and all of a sudden they start talking about, you know, apple cider vinegar is really good for you. This organic apple cider vinegar, you know, all you have to do with organic apple cider vinegar, you drink a little bit of it, and it cleanses your gallbladder, keeps gallbladder problems away, and it helps with your liver and kidneys. It's a really great cleanse, just a tablespoon or so a day, and it's really good for you. Oh, funny side note, it also heals warts. What? Yeah, oh, our daughter, she had one wart on her knee, and it spread, and it spread, and it spread. Her entire knee was covered in warts. And within two weeks, the apple cider vinegar healed it. I said, really? Me and Dave are looking at each other, and I'm like, no faith necessary. I'm whipping out the warts. I said, would it heal these? They looked at them, and they were still my friend afterward. Oh, my. I'm just praising Jesus that they weren't, like, right here. So they're like, oh, yeah, that's way less. That's nothing compared to our daughters. Just get some gauze, get it wet, put it on there, put a Band-Aid on it, keep it like that 24 hours a day. Y'all are taking more notes right now than you have the whole time. You'll notice what's missing here. Um, An open Bible. Now, she's not qualified to actually be a pastor, um, but if... If there were a pastor preaching at Faith Church St. Louis on this particular occasion, the job of that pastor would be to exegete the scriptures. So at this point, we have discovered that, well, her theology runs into reality, okay? Now, serious, I mean, they teach that you've got to have positive thoughts and that your thoughts create the future. She prayed the prayer of faith over her wart on her finger, and it didn't go away. She prayed the prayer of faith, and she cursed it, and it didn't go away. She had it frozen several times, and it, produ- it reproduced. It, it, the, the wart had a baby. And at this point, what is she falling back on? Well, you'll notice that at this point, she should be challenging her theology. She should be questioning her doctrine, okay, and realizing, wait a second, maybe I'm not believing something right here. But she's not doing that. She's not challenging her theology and her doctrine, which, by the way, is heretical. Uh, Instead, she's now going to have a rescue story. This is a rescue story that will save her theology, okay? And watch how this happens because now she's gotten a tip from a friend that organic apple vinegar will cure you right up if you got warts, okay? Which, by the way, has nothing to do with cursing the prayer of faith or anything like that. Keep it on at 24 hours a day. And that was about three weeks ago. You couldn't even see it on the camera. There's a little hole left because as I put the apple cider vinegar on it, it started kind of eating the flesh away. The flesh kind of turned white and would fall off. And so the wart turned white and it fell off. And inside the wart was this brown spur with spikes everywhere. And the spikes were dug into my flesh. And that was the wart virus. Did you know warts are viruses? Yeah, I was aware of that. This wart virus was dug into my flesh. And so even after the flesh had come off the top of it, there was this black, wicked, evil virus. And it looked like a burr. You ever got a... Okay, gross story. Okay, that's... um, Nicole, um, what on earth does this have anything to do with Christianity, the Bible sound? Oh, yeah, you're not concerned about any of that stuff. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Burn your sock. 
It looked like a burr, and it was in my flesh, and it did not want to come out. The apple cider vinegar ate all around it, but it wasn't penetrating that blackness. Finally, all the other flesh was gone, and that's what left the hole is one day I hit it, and that black piece came out all in one chunk. It left a hole. I mean, it's kind of like a little crater in my finger. It is healing nicely now. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you didn't break a nail in the process. But that black chunk did not want to let go of my flesh. There's like a whole lot of spiritual meaning in that part right there. Really, there isn't. So that was about, it only took about two weeks for that to happen. And you know what I did? I'd like to say that I was like the lepers in the Bible. I went walking and leaping and praising God. No, I didn't. I murmured and I complained. God, you didn't heal that word off my hand. And I had to get apple cider vinegar and it was a mess and it stunk and it stung my other skin and it, it was disgusting. And I had to keep a bandaid on and I'd wash my hands and I'd get wet and I'd have to sit in the bathroom at work and change my bandaid. And I got bandages all over the place and flesh falling off my body. And God, why didn't you just heal my wart? And do you know what I had resounding on the inside of me? Oh, no. So now we got direct revelation. Apparently God spoke right to her. Now, my question would be the logical one. And here it is. Well, since you're in flat-out rebellion against God um, and what his word clearly says, that you're not to be a pastor, okay? Husband of one wife, that's one of the qualifications. You're the wife, not the husband. The pastoral office is held only by guys. So why on earth should I believe for a second that you're receiving direct revelation from God resounding in your heart? You teach the word of faith heresy. You are in rebellion against God's word when it comes to the pastoral office. And so all of a sudden I'm supposed to believe you now that God is going to reveal to you the spiritual significance about this wart removal thing. He said, I did heal your wart. He did heal my wart. No, Nicole, he did not heal your wart, honey. The apple cider vinegar healed your wart. Anybody can try it. Here it is right now. Well, you know what? This is probably a word from God to God from God to all the people I just saw writing down apple cider. Oh, no. So apparently the word of God, you know, it came really powerfully the other night at Faith Church in St. Louis. And here was the word of God. Are you ready? Apple cider vinegar. If you're suffering from warts, that's the thing that will cure you right up. Cider vinegar. Because... Just because we have in our minds that God is supposed to do something a certain way, it doesn't mean that God has any intention or had ever made any promise he was going to do it just that way. We put in our minds that God was going to work a miracle in our life. Huh? Um, yeah, do you got any biblical passages that we can look at to kind of go over the fine print, maybe take a look at the original languages on this particular doctrine that you're floating out there that isn't based on anything written in the scripture. <laughs> no, this is a, this is a new doctrine, okay? And it's based upon a story regarding a persistent wart, apple uh, cider vinegar, and a supposedly a direct revelation from God regarding a wart. Jesus did some pretty crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. To get a miracle. Huh? I need a volunteer who's brave. No, we're done. <laughs> yeah. If you want to see the rest of it, you, know, you just go to Faith Church St. Louis and uh, their website and you can. <clears throat> so there you go. So, I mean, what's the point? I mean, yeah. Who needs a Bible? 
I mean, we've got you know now you know experiential wart stories that tell us something about the nature of how God works miracles. Um, just be sure not to get too tied up on on the which miracle God's supposed to do in your life. So. All right, moving along real quick. Uh, over the weekend, uh, this uh, particular video went viral, and um, I, I'm just going to comment on it quickly. Okay, it's real simple, real simple to uh, to shoot this thing down. A guy by the name of P- uh, Pastor Phil Snyder showed up at the Springfield City Council meeting back in August, and now the it, the video is posted on YouTube. And unless you've been under a rock for the past, you know, couple of days, uh, chances are you've seen it. All right. But uh, what's interesting here is, is that uh, he's 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 going to pull a fast one. Okay, everything you hear him say in the first part of the video, he doesn't mean it. He's actually trying to make a point in favor of uh, gay marriage. Okay, so with that, uh, here's the video of um, uh Pastor, preacher, Phil Snyder, and again, listen carefully. Don't get too enamored by what he says in the beginning because he's going to pull the rug out from everybody in just a second. Here we go. Good evening. My name is the Reverend Dr. Phil Snyder. I was born and raised in Springfield, Missouri, and I stand before you this evening in support of this ordinance. I worry about the future of our city. Any accurate reading of the Bible should make it clear that gay rights goes against the plain truth of the Word of God. As one preacher warns, man and overstepping the boundary lines God has drawn by making special rights for gays and lesbians has taken another step in the direction of inviting the judgment of God upon our land. This step of gay rights is but another stepping stone toward the immorality and lawlessness that will be characteristic of the last days. This ordinance represents a denial of all that we believe in, and no one should force it on us. It's not that we don't care about homosexuals, but it's that our rights will be taken away. And unchristian views will be forced on us and our children, for we will be forced to go against our personal morals. Outside government agents are endeavoring to disturb God's established order. It is not in line with the Bible. Do not let people lead you astray. The liberals leading this movement do not believe the Bible any longer, but every good, substantial, Bible-believing, intelligent, orthodox Christian can read the Word of God and know what is happening is not of God. When you run into conflict with God's established order, you have trouble. You do not produce harmony. Now, like I said, don't get too enamored by this. He's about to pull the rug out from everybody. He's he's, uh, trying to make a point in favor of gay rights. You produce destruction and trouble, and our city is in the greatest danger that it has ever been in in its history. The reason is that we have gotten away from the Bible of our forefathers. You see, the right of segregation... I'm sorry. Hold on. This is the trick now. He's now about ready to pull the trick. The right of segregation is clearly established by the Holy Scriptures both by precept and example. One minute. I'm sorry. I brought the wrong notes with me this evening. Uh, I've borrowed my argument from the wrong century. Uh, It turns out what I've been reading to you this whole time are direct quotes from white preachers from the 1950s and the 1960s, all in support of racial segregation. All I have done is simply take out the phrase racial integration and substituted it with the phrase gay rights. 
I guess the arguments I've been hearing around Springfield lately sounded so similar to these that I got them confused. I hope you will not make the same mistake. I hope you will stand on the right side of history. Thank you. All right. So there you go. So what he did is he went out there and argued, claiming that all of the things, all of his arguments there were arguments that were put forward by white racist segregationists in the South during the 50s and 60s who were fighting racial integration. Okay. Now, something to point out. The Bible does not teach racial separation. There is only one race on the planet, and that's the human race. Okay. There is only one race on the planet. That's the human race. The race-based slavery that occurred in the United States is an abomination. And the racial segregation that occurred after the Civil War in the time of Reconstruction all the way to, through to the Civil Rights era could not and cannot be justified biblically. You would have to twist God's word in order to come up with what those people were doing, and that's what they were doing. They were abusing God's word. And then when the gig was up and society was turning against their, their sin— they were basically say, pulling out the Bible and saying the Bible teaches racial segregation, and it doesn't. Okay? So here we've got a real problem, and that is, is that this, the arguments sound similar. Okay? The appeals are to the same authority. But nowadays, if you're going to argue against gay rights, and we must, it is a sin. It is absolutely reprehensible. It is clear in Scripture that it's an abomination. And, you know, unfortunately, there are liberal, quote-unquote, Christians who are leading the charge to fight for gay marriage, gay rights, and things like of this. And it's undermining our society and destroying and wrecking our church, despite the fact that there are clear, unambiguous prohibitions against homosexual behavior and lust all in Scripture. This is not unambiguous. And so what's going on here is this guy is basically, you know, arguing because, well, these people got it wrong from the Bible on, were on the wrong side of history, that those who are standing against homosexual rights, gay marriage and all this, that it's the same thing. By the way, um, you know, being having homosexual proclivities is not the same thing as being born black or born Asian or born white. It's not the same thing at all. It's absolutely not the same thing at all. In fact, one of the things I describe it as is basically sexual Gnosticism. It's a denial of who God made you to be and what God made you based upon an internal feeling and experience that you have within you. There, You are either male or female. You are not either uh, heterosexual male or homosexual male, heterosexual female, you know, and all this other stuff that goes along you know, with the uh, alphabet soup and all that kind of stuff. Your experience inside of you is not what determines what you are, okay? And homosexuality at its core is a flat-out rebellion against who God made people to be. God made you male or female. He did not make you anything else, okay? All of that other stuff is a result of sin. And homosexuals, as well as heterosexual uh, sinners... That would include all of us, me included, are called to repent and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. 
So we're supposed to trust in that and repent of our sins, not embrace it and identify ourselves with it. So what this guy is doing, basically this is a red herring argument, and it's it's a, one of the more subtle ones out there. And the, the reality is what you have to do is say, basically, listen, those people who were making those appeals to the Bible were flat out wrong. They were heretics. They were trying to cloak their evil by shrouding themselves in the Bible. Now, if you would like me to quote to you what the Scripture says unambiguously regarding um, homosexual behavior, we could do that. But see, you can't do that with so-called racial segregation. The Bible doesn't teach it. What it does teach is that the Jews of of Israel at the time of the theocracy of Israel were not to intermarry because those people believed in false gods, okay? And Christians, okay, in a similar way, should not be marrying people who are pagans because it, it you don't want, you can't, yeah, it doesn't, it messes up the faith thing and you got kids to consider and all that kind of stuff. But see, the thing is a Christian can marry Anybody of any particular skin color, doesn't matter if it's person's white, brown, light brown, uh, doesn't matter. There's only one race on the planet, that's the human race. So, yeah, yeah, be careful. When you see these types of things, you need to be ready to go after the people who were falsely using the Scripture to justify the unjustifiable. And standing against gay marriage is not the same thing as standing against racial segregation. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me and my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Sermon review time. Uh, how to hug a vampire. That sounds like some practical, relevant advice. Can hardly wait to get it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, hour number two, Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. 
got a hug a vampire. I mean, you got to find something that fits with Halloween, don't you? Especially if you're trying to be seeker-driven. All right, let's do this right. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via uh, Keystone Church, Keller, Texas. The uh, sermon series is entitled How to Hug a Vampire. The specific sermon that we will be listening to is entitled I Work with a Vampire. Now, practical stuff here. I mean, if you've ever spent any time out there at the office, if you've ever spent any time out there in corporate America, well, then... You know that working with other human beings can be its own drama or um, comedy. You know, that working with other human beings is really tricky because, well, we're all sinners. So, um, <laughs> you know, and plus it's, you know, like Halloween time. Therefore, you know, we got to come up with something that would fit with the Halloween theme. We got to be relevant, right? So. Anyway, the uh, gentleman uh, preaching this, I think his name is Brandon Thomas. I'll have to look and look at it uh, here in a minute. But um, what you will find interesting about this sermon <clears throat> is that, well, he's going to try to back this up using a biblical text. The biblical text that he has chosen <laughs> will probably make your head spin. So without any further ado, here is How to Hug a Vampire. Um Without any further ado, here's How to Hug a Vampire, Brandon Thomas, Keystone Church, Keller, Texas. Here we go. That's right. Yes. Well, we want to welcome everybody to Keystone Church. Let's welcome North Fort Worth right now, everybody. Come on. And everybody, let's welcome Keller Campus, Crazy Town. And most important, let's welcome both campuses loudly, all the guests who are here today at Keystone Church, huh? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So uh, I love TV, so let's just have a little quiz. How many of you are familiar with this little tune? Check it out. Anybody? Raise your hands if you're in. All right. Put your hands down. The Office. Any big fans of The Office? Let's hear it. Yeah? Well, it must have diminished over the years. But, uh, but you know, here's the thing about The Office. The Office, uh, it's in its last season. Did you catch what he said? It must have diminished over the years. Yeah, I think the reason he said that is because he thought for sure he would have a relevant home run here. You know, how to hug a vampire and there's vampires at work. Which, by the way, I don't think is a healthy metaphor for us to be... Uh, embracing or teaching as Christians. We're all sinners. And, you know, basically telling, you know, Christians that, listen, your coworkers are all vampires. Yeah, I just, I don't think that's helpful, useful, or anything of the sort. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty
pretty convinced that um, a non-Christian attending a church like this, hearing that they're a vampire, would probably be offended rather than feel that, oh, this is so relevant. You know what I'm saying? We continue. And it has been making people laugh for many, many years. And, And here's the thing about The Office. The Office is built on a bunch of people in utter dysfunction. I mean, that's what it's all about. It is basically people working together who suck the life out of each other. I mean, these are people who drive each other nuts. There's all kinds. Now that's yeah, that's the office, but that's not necessarily what people experience at their jobs. Kinds of drama, and the drama is built on dysfunction, and we laugh. We laugh as we see the drama unfold. We laugh at the dysfunction, but when it comes to real life, it's no laughing matter, is it? Drama in the workplace, no laughing matter. And so today we pick up on the series, How to Hug a Vampire, dealing with the people who suck the life out of you. And today I want to talk about the vampire I work with. Okay. Now, not particularly me. I'm not going to call out Brian, for example. Okay. Not going there, but, but the vampire we all work with now, now before we go any further, please understand that, that as we talk about that other person, we must all be careful before we get started to position our hearts, to be ready to hear this truth right here, right here. You suck too. Okay. That's it. You suck the life out of someone else. So as you begin to think about the vampires that surround you, let's all be aware of the vampire within you. Let's all be aware that, that you drive somebody else crazy at work, that, that the problem in your work environment is not just everybody else, but that the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? That means that we all suck the life out of someone else. Jesus said it this way. Hey, while you're obsessing on the speck in your neighbor's eye, let's not, let's not ignore the huge bizarro log protruding out of your eye socket. Let's not do that. Let's, let's all just have a deep moment where we say, you know what? I could be this vampire that we're about to talk about today. But we all realize that there are stresses in the workplace. What does a work vampire look like? What does that vampire look like? Well, first of all, I, I, I've, I've kind of created a little bit of list. Now, I'm not saying that these people surround me every single day, but I do have quite a list. All right. Jealous, the jealous guy, the irritating person. The socially awkward coworker, the overcusser, the weird guy at work. Does everybody have the weird guy at work? It's all in the eyes, you know? <laughs> and they're especially dangerous if they smile. Anyway, the weird guy at work. The I'm in it for me guy, the been there, done that girl. Okay? Now, now I'm not done with this list. I have many more. Okay, here we go. I wish they did it my way, vampire. The office bully vampire. The my office is Survivor Island, and I will outwit, outwit, outlast, and outplay my coworkers, vampire. And if somewhere along this list I didn't trip off somebody you work with, you work utterly alone. <laughs> because... And the list could go on and on. We all have vampires around us. We all have vampires amongst us. And it is a reality in life. And so as I think about this real issue in our life, you know, God is so amazing. In the Bible, God speaks to us right where we are. And as you begin to open up the pages of the Bible, you begin to discover 
that God shows us how to deal with the most practical of areas in our life. That God's interested in your life. God's not just so busy keeping the universe finely tuned so that life can exist. Like all his power goes into making meteors avert the earth, right? Okay, now watch what he's doing. He's, he's, he's pitching this biblical book that he hasn't named yet. That, you know, basically saying, oh, listen, you know, God, is, you know, he's not so busy that he uh, that the only thing he cares about is making sure that, you know, black holes and nebulas and things like that don't collide with each other. You know, you know, taking care of the cosmos. He's written a book that actually shows you he cares about, well, the challenges that you have at the office. <laughs> You're going, what book is that? With, you because know, the first time I heard this, I'm thinking, I, I was going through the memory banks going, okay, I, I'm having a hard time figuring out which book he's going to go to. What book out there demonstrate that, demonstrates that God really cares about the minutia of the challenges that people face in, at the workplace? All right, let's continue. I'm not going to reveal it. You know, I, I, no spoilers here. He's not so so limited in his power that he he is only into cosmic order man god is interested in the order of your life god's interested in the details of your life god's interested in how you live every single day and so as i think about the vampires amongst us the vampires around us the the workplace vampire i begin to think about one person now this one person is a famous person in the bible this one person in the Bible has a famous story. Actually, this guy has like two or three famous stories. This one person is so big in the Bible, he has an entire book named after him in the Bible, okay? In Manhattan, he has a street named after him. So have you figured out who this famous biblical character is whose book gives us the proof that God cares about the challenges that we face at the office? We continue. I, I'm not going to spoil it. So to speak, when it comes to the Bible, man, he has big time real estate. He has an entire book named after himself. I'm talking about the mega hero in the Bible, book named after him, famous person, Daniel. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well... That's the new spin. I've I've never heard that take on Daniel before. You know, Daniel. That's you see. You know, you you got the uh, you got Philippians. Supposedly, it's all about joy. Philippians is all about joy, and Nehemiah. That's all about vision casting and leadership. And Daniel. Well, now that's that book about the challenges in the workplace. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Um, does the word trite sound like it fits here? Daniel is a stud. Let me tell you a little bit about Daniel. Give or take 2,400 years ago, this guy named Daniel was basically living in a time of political turmoil. I mean, major political turmoil. You see, the nation of Israel was called to follow God. It was in their DNA. It's who they were. The nation of Israel existed to show everybody what it looked like for a nation to love God. No, that's absolutely not true. The nation of Israel did not exist to show everybody what it looks like to, you know, to love God. Because <laughs> they, were, they were horrible at it. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Have you read the Old Testament? I mean, 
Israel was like the perfect example of of what it looks like to rebel against God many times. No, the nation of Israel existed because it was through the nation of Israel that the promised Messiah would come. The one that was promised in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve disobeyed God and were judged by God. But God said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. See, that promised Messiah... We, we, the nation of Israel is the nation through which the the Messiah came, and so you know what God was doing there was wasn't wasn't setting Israel up as this nation. Oh, look! If you want to know what it looks like to serve, just look at Israel. <laughs> you know, ay ay ay. Yeah, that's no. It's all about the Messiah, the one promised in the Garden of Eden. That so genetically, Jesus comes through that that race of people. So that's why God is working with them in preparation for the one to come who has already come. That's Jesus. We continue. And so Israel, at one point in their history, decided to give God the Heisman, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. Just like they did. In the garden, we see Adam and Eve. They took a bite of the forbidden fruit, which sent this shockwave of sin and brokenness all over everything. Well, you realize when they did that, they were saying, God, I don't have to do life your way. I'm going to give it my way. And we do that all the time. You do it in dating. You do it with your money. We do it in all kinds of areas of our life. We say, remember that shockwave of sin that you talked about? Yeah, that's called original sin. Each and every one of us born, uh, uh, natural descendants of Adam and Eve, are born dead and trespasses in sins. That's the reason why we sin. The scriptures make it very clear. We sin because we are sinners, we are not sinners because we sin. There's a big difference between those two concepts. Again, the Bible makes it clear. We sin because we are sinners. We continue. God, I want to do it my way. Well, Israel as a nation kind of collectively said that too. They said, we're going to do life our way. We're not going to follow God's design. We're going to walk away from our mission to be a light to the rest of the nation, showing them what it looks like to follow God and love God fully. We're going to walk away from that. A big stern warning, by the way, for our country. We're going to walk away from that. We're going to give up on our, on our heartbeat for God, and we're going to go our own way. You may be tempted to do this by slicing God into slices of like the pie of your life. And he gets like two or three slices, but then you have the work slices and you have the romantic slices and you have all this. And so when it's time for you to eat a little romance, you ignore the religion. Can I tell you, that's no way to live your life. And it led to doom for the nation of Israel. About 2,400 years ago, as I said, the nation of Israel had rejected God. And so what happened? There was a country, the megapower of the day, and Israel, unprotected by God, this megapower went and destroyed Israel. They attacked them. God's holy nation attacked Israel, tore down the the temple, and just destroyed the nation of Israel. What does this look like? Well, the Babylonians had a very interesting practice in history that we learn, and also biblical history we learn, is that they would take the best and the brightest from the people that they had conquered, and they would literally pick them up from their homelands and bring them home to Babylon. Daniel was one of those young men, almost a boy, who had been picked up from Israel, brightest and the best, and had been taken to Babylon 
to live in Babylon. So basically the Babylonians saw Daniel and they said, that dude is the cream of the crop. He rise to the top. So jump around. I mean, that's what he did. The fact that you know that song just... That's what they did. They said cream... Some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. You're better for it. Okay? But cream of the crop, rise to the top. Daniel was one of those that spotted him quick. Young leader. So as a young man, he was brought into the Babylonian government, brought into the palace... To, to raise up and be, a, and be a young leader and to make him a Babylonian. Well, what we learn about Daniel is through 80 years, we're going to pick up on his 80th year, but through 80 years, he lived in exile away from Israel. For 80 years, he lived away from his home. Now, here's the interesting thing. You might think that after 80 years, he had forgotten where he came from. He didn't. 80 years into his life is all he had ever really known as an adult. And yet, as we're about to discover... He did not forget his home. He did not forget his country. He did not forget his purpose. And most importantly, he had not forgotten his God. He had not forgotten his God. This is huge. So 80 years. Now, here's the cool thing. Daniel, at 80 years old, had risen to uber prominence in the country's government. Now, there had been a lot of political turmoil The Babylonians had been conquered by somebody else. And basically, Daniel had still stayed on top. And so here he is, 80 years old. He sees governments come and go. He he saw his own nation come and go. And through it all, he, at 80 years old, is one of a handful of people. I mean, a small room of people who were like the cabinet to the king. Almost like the most trusted advisors to the king. He was in a very small room of power. He had had incredible success. And so we see Daniel in the midst of that success, in the midst of that power thriving. Well, let's up the ante. The king decided, in Daniel 6 we learn, the king decided that he loved Daniel more than any of them. He trusted him more than any of them. And so Daniel, who had worked some major miracles through these 80 years, who had risen to great prominence, who had interpreted dreams, who who had done some amazing things, Daniel was tapped as being the right hand of the king. Above, even those in the small room of advisors, he was going to be like the vice president or the prime minister of the entire nation. Incredible. I mean, at this point, you think parades and, yeah, that's what it looks like when you follow Jesus, man. You're going to have nothing but success. And if you don't have success, man, what's wrong with you? You're going to get along with everybody. If you have office problems, man, what's wrong with you? Where's your faith? Not so in the life of Daniel. What we learn is Daniel is so much like us, you'd be shocked. Your jaw's about to drop as you discover that in the small room of influence, those people began to have jealousy. Jealousy. Enter the vampires. Enter the vampires. The co-workers, green with jealousy. You know what I mean? vampires who began to say to themselves, why he, why he, why is he the one? Man, this guy isn't even from here. Why him? Why not me? So here's what they began to do. They began to plot and look for weaknesses, for chinks in his armor, for weak spots. And so they began to stake out and stalk Daniel. He began to stalk them. They began to do a stakeout. 
trying to figure out where his weaknesses were. I mean, it could have been an episode of cheaters. It was so bad. You don't, oh, y'all don't even act like you don't know. Hmm, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. You've had that late night experience where you're flipping and, and your finger is like the last thing to fall asleep. Everything else is comatose. Then you, uh, uh, and there's an episode of cheaters. Okay. I don't even know if it's still on TV, but basically, you know, it's like the people falling around. Oh, excuse me, sir. Who is this woman with you? That's basically what's going on. They're doing a stakeout. And they're trying to figure out the weaknesses in them. And so, like an episode of Cheaters, they're sitting there in the little SUV waiting. And waiting. And waiting. And they have a really long wait. Because here's the deal. Daniel, nothing. No mistress. No funny finances. Nothing. So they got frustrated. And they said, well, we can't pin him down on anything. So let's go another route. They went to the king and they appealed to his pride. They appealed to his lust for power. They appealed to his need for adoration. If you have any authority in the workplace, beware the king vampire. You may be that vampire. So they went to him. They began to throw pillows. Your majesty, long live the king. You're amazing. You're all that. Oh, king, everything you touch turns to gold. What's up, man? Dude, you're amazing. You know what, King? I, I just got an idea. I mean, this is out of the box, okay? I know this is crazy, but you're so amazing. Let's have like a month where it's like King Month. And let's just all take a time out from our other religions, and let's only pray to you for like 30 days. Now, some of you are like, what? Worship a king? Are you kidding me? Like he's a god? It happens all the time. In the New Testament days, you see that the New Testament, uh, in that era, the Caesar of the day, they worshipped him like a king. He wasn't just a political figure. He was like a religious figure to them. And I would argue that even today, we turn to our political leaders and we lift them up to almost Christ-like status, messianic proportions, that they're going to fix all of our problems, not so beware of that danger. It's a messed up, messed up mindset. So what we do is we see this king gave in to the, the pride ride. Okay, now I'm going to pay, have you pay close attention to a particular fact about what he's doing. He's not reading the text. He is controlling the biblical narrative. Okay. My suspicion, the reason why he's controlling the biblical narrative is so that he can make his own points regarding the story rather than the theological points that are actually made in the story. Anybody who is in control of the narrative rather than the biblical text, yeah, that's generally a bad sign. Let's see what happens, though. And he basically decided, yeah, let's roll with this. Let's do this. 30 days, no other gods before me. And so this is what happened next. In Daniel chapter 6... Starting in verse 10. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. By the way, Daniel had a sweet pad. Okay, understand. He was living in the sweet spot of success. He had made some moolah. He had a two-story building that he had had perhaps specially built for him for a prayer room. 
You know, some of us have funny rooms in our house, like the cat room or, you know, whatever. He had the prayer room. And the, it was constructed just perfectly where the windows would open up and he could look at the direction where Jerusalem used to stand, where his homeland was. I mean, this dude was wealthy. So you put him wherever your wealth spot is. Maybe he was sitting in the middle of South Lake or Highland Park, Park Cities, Uptown. Or for some of you, in a big ranch in the middle of nowhere. Wherever it is, you just put yourself there. And he was maybe right there looking over, you know, whatever it is for you, success, he was in the sweet spot of it. So he did have a lot to lose. So here he is. He went to his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem and he prayed. Three times a day he he prayed just as he had always done. Do not forget that phrase. Just as he had always done. Giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. Asking for God's help. He's not unemotional. I mean, he's stressed out. Asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about this law. Oh, king. um, You remember that one little thing that we just did? You know, that big, oh, king, whoa. Remember that thing? That's what they did. Did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? See, the particular thing that he had signed said, if you worshiped any other God, you'll be killed. And then he signed it in such a way that it was irrevocable. Yes, the king replied, that decision stands. It's an official law of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be revoked. Then they told the king, well, that man, Daniel... By the way, revealing their jealous spirit. You see the same spirit in the New Testament. In the story of the prodigal sons, the younger and the older, the wild one and the religious one, the judgmental one and the, and the real, real crazy wild one. You see the, the judgmental brother talking to the father saying, that son of yours, not my brother, that son of yours. It's a heart problem, jealousy, green with envy. And they say, that, that man, Daniel, not, not our Co-worker, not out, no, that man, Daniel, that's vampire language. That man, Daniel, one of the captives from Judah is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Hearing this, the king was ticked. The king went in a rage. The king was furious. No, says he was deeply troubled. He realized, boom. I walked right into that. He realized, what am I thinking? What have I done? These guys just totally, totally got me. Checkmate. Checkmate. He was deeply troubled. He tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. And in the evening, the men went together to the king and said, Your majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no law that the king signs can be change. Let's just stop right there. Office politics, office pressure, professional pressure, office politics. How do we handle these things? If you're a student. So now we've turned this into a story about office politics and office pressure. When this is a story about God's children in exile because of their sin and those who have survived the remnant, well, They are penitent, 
and they are not following in the idolatry of the nation that they came from and have repented. I, I would point you to something like Daniel's prayer, just to give you an example. In fact, if you have your Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. It just It's a fantastic and beautiful prayer by, uh, by Daniel here. Unfortunately, what uh, Brandon here is doing is actually distracting from the story because he's not really bi- reading the biblical text. He's got he he's got to be relevant, so he's turned this into a thing about office politics. That's like such a bad contextualization. But I, let me give you an example of the faith of Daniel, so you really see what's in play. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asuerus, by descent, a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books of the number of the years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he was reading the prophet Jeremiah and realized, okay, God had promised that their exile would only be for 70 years. This is giving him hope. So listen to this. So listen to this prayer. So then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant with steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong, and acted wickedly, and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this time, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, who are near, and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belong open shame to our kings and to our princes and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Notice here the, the themes of law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, right here in Daniel. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us great calamity. For under the whole of heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all of this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity that has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. 
O Lord, according to all of your righteous acts, let your anger and your truth turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. See, I think that prayer in Daniel chapter 9 gives us a huge look into the faith that Daniel had. He understood exactly why he was in Babylon rather than Jerusalem. It was because of the great idolatry, rebellion, iniquity, and sinfulness and I, of the people of Israel who basically abandoned the Lord their God to, to run after and chase after, or as Jeremiah says, whore after false gods. He understands that they are receiving their just punishment, and even in the midst of that, he prays for God's mercy and forgiveness. Why would he even think that he could pray for such a thing? Because when you read the prophet Jeremiah, over and again, Jeremiah pleads with Israel, pleads with his countrymen to repent and and, and, and assures them that God will forgive and God is merciful. So there in Daniel, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. To turn the story of Daniel in the lion's den into an episode of The Office is to basically just turn it into a myth. It's, it's, it's ridiculous what Brandon Thomas is doing here. It is such a mistreatment of this text, and it totally misses the point of what's really going on in the real drama of this real story. We continue. This isn't just for mom and dad. How do you handle it when you're walking down the hallways of school and you feel some political pressure? I'm talking about pressure to act a certain way, dress a certain way, behave a certain way. Pressure in journalism class, pressure in the band How do you handle the social pressures in your profession? And yes, as a student, you are a professional student right now. I hope that makes you feel good. Wherever you are in your profession, how do you handle the social pressures of the vampires around you? If you are a mom raising kids, the CEO of the home, setting up an environment for the family to thrive... How do you handle the pressures from some of your friends or some of the neighbors? Wherever you are professionally in your life, how do you handle the office politics? There's a lot of different ways we may handle that. We could suck up. 
You could suck up to the boss. You could suck up to the people who are coming after you. You just like, oh, you know, I got to figure out how to make this right. I'm just going to go be so nice and I'm going to bring them candy and, and maybe they'll just lay off. You can go postal. What, 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 what? Did you just do that? Did you just do that with me? I'm going to go mafia on you. That's what you do. <laughs> postal. Or you begin to sling mud. You begin to try to distract. Look over here. Look over here. Do you see what they've done? Do you see? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I've got some stuff. Let's talk about that later. Shiny object, shiny object. Look over here. Shiny object. Nothing over here. Shiny object over here. Shiny, shiny, shiny. Look over here. Right here. Yes, yes, yes. Right here. They're awful. They're horrible. You elevate their dysfunction so that you could have people ignore yours or what they're saying about you. You sling mud. Bring other people down so that you can rise. Sling mud. How else? Cut and run. Abandon your responsibilities. You start to lie. You get tunnel vision. You just worry, 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 worry. And you begin to elevate your problem to a place it really isn't. How do you handle? What on earth does this litany of what could go wrong in the office have anything to do with the story of Daniel? Answer, it has nothing to do with the story of Daniel at all. The pressure. Understand, when you feel that kind of pressure and stress relationally from the vampires and your work relationships, you do understand it will affect your attitude. And it will make you insane in the membrane. It will mess you up. You cannot go there. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says this. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. What is the Bible saying here? Resist the urge to pick Uh, false arguments. Boy, that sounds like that passage is talking about those who would come up with plausible sounding arguments against the Christian faith. Denying that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Denying that God created the world. You know, things like that. That's what that sounds like to me. Pick up the same weapons that they've picked up in order to defend yourself. In order to defend yourself, you'll be tempted to pick up the same weapons that they're actually using to attack you. These weapons that they've picked up to attack you... You'll pick up those same weapons to defend yourself. God's saying that is a cycle of death and destruction. I believe it's actually an end game for the enemy. The enemy looks at this and says, okay, I've got me a vampire right here, but I'd love to have me another. So at this vampire, let's, I've taught them well how to gossip. I've taught them well how to character assassinate. I've taught them well how to go negative. I've taught them well how to bully. I've taught them now how to, well how to be negative. So let's get that vampire to sink their teeth and suck the life out of you. Now, let's watch what happens. Come here, demons. Come here. Check this out. This is going to be awesome. Watch them pick up the same weapons to defend themselves. And the enemy's going score touchdown i only had one vampire now i have two i had a vampire over here now i've created another vampire god in second corinthians says different 
He says, when you've been attacked with the weapons of the world, gossip, uh, 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 bullying, um, negativity, you know, whatever it is, when you've been attacked with mistreatment, when you've been attacked with the weapons of the culture, weapons of the world, man-made weapons, you don't pick up man-made weapons, you pick up God-sized weapons. In other words, they come at you with a knife, you pick up God's gun. They come at you with a gun, you pick up God's bazooka. That's what you do. Yes, that is an Untouchables reference. <laughs> you come at me with a knife, they pick up a gun. Are you ready to do this? Anyway, probably horrible. That was Sean Connery, in case you didn't know. That was as good as it gets. Yeah, that wasn't even close. From me. <laughs> no, I mean, we're, we're trying to fight. With the wrong weapons. Here's God's design. God's design is that you pick up heavenly weapons to wage war against the man-made weapons. And here's the cool thing. While the enemy was creating two vampires, here's God's design. God's design is that through you, when you pick up his weapons, first of all, you won't become a vampire. Second of all, there's a good fighting chance that you'll turn them from a vampire into a true human being. Serious. I mean, this sounds like something like an elementary kid would make up. Okay, so like, you know, uh, uh, he said that uh, if you touch him, then you become a vampire too. And so, oh no, now you got like two vampires. But see, but then if you like use the secret weapon, then... You don't become a vampire. Yeah, the the other guy becomes a human again. No way, huh? huh? <laughs> oh boy. I mean, this is a mess. This is really truly a mess. The reason why it's such a mess is because this has nothing to do with the story of Daniel, nor does it have anything to do with what Paul was referring to in 2 Corinthians 10. Let me read it for you. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Okay? Notice what it says there. Arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. It's not talking about, oh yeah, you know, when somebody's gossiping about you at the workplace, that we're we're going to take our weapons of warfare that are not of the flesh that have divine power to destroy and we're going to destroy your gossip it's not what it's talking about we have we have divine uh, divine power to destroy strongholds destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of god and to take every thought captive to obey christ to be ready to punish every disobedience when our obedience when your obedience is complete you get it? Yeah, this this has more to do with defending the faith in the face of false teachers, defending the faith in the face of skeptics and philosophers. That's what this is really referring to. We continue. To a person who, who could find life in Christ. When you fight that way with God's weapons, you bring peace and life and love, not more death and gossip and destruction and alienation and mistreatment and slander. So which side will you choose? You say, Brandon, that sounds great. How do I do that? Ephesians chapter 6. I'm glad you asked. 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 says, Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil and put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. So what do you do? You pick up God's weapons. You say, here comes the fiery arrows of slander. I'm going to put on the shield of faith. I'm going to believe that God is going to defend my name. And I'm not going to just stand around and just let all this untruth happen. But I'll tell you what, I'm not going to fight back by slinging mud. You say, but Brandon, that's just not how it's done. That's just not how it's done. I mean, you come at me, you got to know if you bring it, it's going to be brought And if <laughs> that wasn't too convincing, <laughs> I promise you I can bring it. I promise you. All right. So, so you say, man, you don't, don't understand, man. You got to have some strength. You got to show some power. You got to stand up for yourself. You don't stand up for yourself. Nobody will. And I'm not saying be a, you know, just somebody who everybody ro- runs over. I'm certainly not saying that, but what I am saying is that God wants you to pick up his weapons and say, you trust God. You put on truth. And that means that for the lies, you're going to say, no, here's the truth. Believe it or not, but here's the truth. You pick up God's weapons. Now, let's, let's keep going. Here, here, what am I really saying here? You need to ask yourself a question. WWDD. Okay, we all together? WWDD. What would Daniel do? What would Daniel do? W or WDDD. What did Daniel do? What's that look like? When he was being assaulted, WDDD. WDDD. What did Daniel do? He went back to his sweet daddy place and he prayed as was his custom. Now, this is big. This is big right here. Because you see, Daniel turned to something bigger than his problems. You see, Daniel's instinctive reaction was to turn to something bigger than his problems. Do you have something bigger than your problems that you can turn to? Do you have something that that you've locked into that is bigger than your problems? Some of you, your problems are so big, you're drowning. You're, You're just falling over. I mean, when the kids rebel, that's all you got. When, when he walks out the door, that's all you got. When, when the money is gone, that's all you got. When the friends turn their back on you, that's all you got. When, when, when you're feeling lonely, that's all you got. Can I help you? There's something bigger you can lock into. There's something grander. There's something bigger. And we learn that from Daniel. And, and the word that I really want to lift, there's a lot of directions I could take this. But what I see here in Daniel's life, WDDD, WDDD, and WWDD, what would Daniel do? You see that devotion precedes emotion. This is big. No, it's not. It's nothing of the sort. This is just asinine. In his life, what did it say over and over again? As was his custom. Usual. 
He did this all the time. Before there was this big emotional drama, he had devotion. Now, a word about devotion and emotion. You need them both. Okay? To follow Christ does not make you some robot. Following Christ doesn't devoid you of emotion. But let me just argue the devotion side. What I'm talking about devotion. Devotion is where you go to something regularly because you love it. To be devoted to something means it's the biggest thing in you. To go to something regular. And for many of you, if you want to know what you're devoted to, you can ask your question, what do I spend my money on? What do I spend my time on? That's a, that I am devoted to. That I am devoted to. You know, I just talked to a family in the, in, in the hallway, and they, they were in a rush because they had a double header today with their kids playing, playing sports. But they were here. That to me... I was like, wow, it would have been so easy to just say, ah, oh, let's lay up this time. That's a big deal. They wanted to be in the house of God. Why? Because they just didn't want to miss. That's devotion. Not because it's some rule and boy, if you don't no, it's because their hearts were saying, I love this place. I don't want to miss. I love being around the people of God. I love hearing about the things of God. I love God filling my heart with his truth. I need this thing. Devotion, prayer, intimate. Devotion. One of the greatest analogies I could, I could just point to is what I did yesterday. I took my little boy to his flag football practice, which was a whip. Because it was real far away and it was just the way my Saturday was going. It did not work with the schedule. And I thought to myself, man, am I going to do this? I did it for him. He, I'm really glad he did. He had a great time. But here's the thing about practice. They do something called drills. If you're not into sports, drills. Okay. And drills go something like this. You run drills and and they're things you'll never do in the real game. Okay. Drills are there to pound patterns into your life. So you learn that I run this way and right about now I turn and I put my hands up and then I catch the ball because here's the thing. When you're in the middle of the game and your neck is, your back's against the wall and your neck is pinned down and the crowd is going crazy and, and the emotions are high and the adrenaline's pumping, that is not the time to figure out how to catch a ball. At that point, you need a little thing called muscle memory. Why does the basketball player stand on the, on the free throw line and, and take thousands of shots in practice? Why? For the time when it's the fourth quarter and there's three seconds left on the clock and you're down by one point and you have two free throw shots and you can win the game. Do not depend on your adrenaline or emotions for that moment. You need ice in your veins. Why? Patterns of discipline, devotion, 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 devotion. I don't even hear the crowd. Boom, we win. Daniel had ice in his veins. Susan and I, when we were first married, we were living in a one-bedroom apartment. We uh, actually had a friend of mine, and he offered to teach us some kung fu. I said, yes. So he came over, and I'm thinking, I'm going to be all that. And so Susan and I are standing there, and we're like, okay, let's do this. you know. And he starts teaching us stuff, and wouldn't you know it, my wife was unbelievable, and I was not. And here's why. Because she grew up doing cheerleading, and she has a great physical intelligence. I grew up student counseling. 
which did not prepare me for kung fu. Uh, notice this is a story about himself. This is not a biblical story. He's he's at this point. I don't know if he's done attempting to make this sermon look like it's biblical. Maybe that's why we've switched subjects completely to him. We only took like two or three classes, but I could still have enough karate to kill you um, or kill me. But here's the thing. Even today, if it's kind of a family joke, like, you know, whenever we're just playing around and just having fun, just kind of joking around. And I just want to be especially annoying. I'll come like, and then, and then, you know, like I'll grab her arms and then she knows how to, I mean, she's amazing. Why? I'm not, I'm really not kidding. It's amazing. I promise. Why? Muscle memory. She has great physical intelligence with her muscles and her athleticism. It's incredible. Seriously. Well, I believe that we need some muscle memory. And and you build that devotion not when you have the emotion. You build the devotion sometimes when you're on the mountaintop. And you remember when the money was out of the bank. And you go and you have the same kind. And sometimes you have to remind yourself and you've got to remember. Yeah, trying to take notes here. Muscle memory when I'm on the mountaintop, not in the emotion of the... Yeah, I'm confused. Remember how God saved you in the past. You've got to remember how you got on your knees and you call out to him. You say, man, I know my belly is full. There's food in the pantry and there's money in the bank. And I'm going to God today just like the day I was hungry. I had no food in the, in the pantry and I was broke. And I called out to God. I'm going to discipline myself today. Today, I'm going to call out to God like that. I'm going to call out to God like that today. I'm going to call out to God with that discipline, with that devotion, because listen, this is a crazy world and I need God like that. And I need to remind myself and I need to develop those muscles so that when the pressure is on and I'm at the free throw line of life and it's time to sink a game winning shot, that's not the time to be relying on your emotions. Now, let me do say this. That doesn't mean that you're a robot. It says that he called out to God for help. I love the fact that he went three times a day. I I don't know about Daniel, but for me, I need three times a day. Because in the morning, I get a little encouragement from God. By the afternoon, I've already started doubting. So I go to God again. He makes me encouraged. By the time it's time to put my head on the pillow, I'm starting to doubt just again. And God says, before you go to bed, let me just assure you, you're going to be all right. Three times a day. There's nothing magical about three times a day. If you want to be a real Jesus follower, you do three times a day. Nothing like that. It's just saying devotion is constant. It's something that you go to. So remind yourself of where you've been and bring it into your today. Because there will be a tomorrow. There will be a tomorrow. Now, I'm not saying that that she's going to leave you tomorrow. I'm not saying you'll be broke tomorrow, but there's always something. There's always some storm in front of us. And we need to be ready. And it's built with devotion. Devotion needs emotion. Devotion needs emotion. Listen, your devotion is to be passion and you're all in and your heart and you're in, in, in. And you have your emotion. You have your heart. You're being passionate. And that daily discipline is being fed emotionally, but when the emotion's on, you don't just you don't go to just your heart. Now, notice all of the solutions that he's offering. I mean, you know, apparently when you've been turned into a vampire or whatever, you know, you, you haven't done the right thing or you don't have enough muscle memory, 
Um, notice what's missing. Forgiveness of sins. That's what's missing. This is all you fixing the problem, doing the disciplined thing and, and all that kind of stuff, right? But n- nowhere is there repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's completely out of line with the same faith that um, Daniel had. Odd that he would go to Daniel and turn it into a story about office politics and then miss the faith of, Ab- of, of Daniel. Missed his faith, missed the fact that he trusted in God and prayed to God for forgiveness for his shortcomings and for the shortcomings of his people. Yep. So, yeah, yeah. You, you got a problem? Well, it's up to you to fix it. You better get disciplined. Better build some muscle memory so that when the time comes for you to, you know, sink the, the, the free throw, you can do it. You, 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 you got to do, 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 do. This is all law. No gospel here. Okay. So devotion precedes emotion. Devotion also trumps demotion. This is big. Daniel was looking at a major demotion. Not just as prime minister, not, oh, now I'm going to go back to the Senate. No. Oh, I'm going to lose some money. I guess I got to let go of this house that I built with the sweet view toward Jerusalem. No. I'm going to miss the cleaners and the pizza place right on the corner and the great burger right down the hall. Death is not a demotion. It's death. No. He was looking at death, the ultimate demotion. How did he respond? With devotion. Muscle memory, for sure. But I think it also says that the demotion wasn't as big as his devotion. The thought of his demotion wasn't as big as his devotion. And hear me when I say this. This is one of the core principles that we believe that we teach here at Keystone. Demotion is coming for all of us. And demotion. Serious. Stop messing with words. Death is death. A demotion is a demotion. It means you go from being at one level to being knocked down to another level, you know, at like work or something like that. Stop monkeying with the language. For some of us, that's hard to believe. It's hard to understand. Demotion is a reality in life. Sometimes that happens in your career. Sometimes it happens in work. There's another word for this, by the way, humility. Humble yourself. Are you always right? You always have to have the last word. Whoever with the mic, Whoever has the mic last wins. Demotion is a part of life. Are you willing to live with humility? Listen to this. Philippians 2.3 says this. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for only your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Did you hear that? In case you didn't know this, the Bible paints the picture in the book of Revelation that Jesus Christ volunteered to come to earth. He was in the heavenly courts with God, eating the heavenly food with God, enjoying celebration in God with God. He was, he was, he is God. With God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all in one, perfect communion, perfect relationship. And he chose to exchange the throne room for a manger? 
He walked away from the seraphim and the angels to walk amongst disease and hurt and dysfunction and death. That's a demotion. Goes on. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Second Corinthians 8, 9 says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Whenever you read a story in the Old Testament like this story, you're about to see some amazing miracle happen. This is one of the big famous stories in the Bible. Whenever you read a story like this, or, or Noah with the archiarchy, or, or David and Goliath, you can be tempted to think that these stories are morality tales to teach your kids right from wrong. Not so. That is not the primary thrust of these stories in the um, but aren't you telling the story of Daniel and the lion's den like a morality tale? That's exactly what you've been doing. Bizarre. The Old Testament. The primary thrust in these stories is not to teach our children bedtime stories that may or not be, may or may not be true. No. True stories throughout history pointing us not to morality, but pointing us to Christ. Every one of them. Every one of them is, is giving us a down payment on what was coming, Jesus. And that is so true with Daniel. Daniel was about to be demoted because of his devotion to Christ. Jesus was demoted because of his devotion for you. Oh, man. Ugh. Christ died for sinners such as us. This is true. But you've done a terrible job of explaining what that's really all about. I, and I just have no confidence that you're going to be able to untangle the knot that you've created in this bizarre sermon. And the problem really goes to the fact that you're trying to be relevant rather than be faithful to God's word. That's the key problem. You don't get in a lot of trouble if you open up the biblical text and you exegete it. You get into all kinds of trouble when you start off with, okay, how can I make this appealing and relevant to people in their life right now? I know. I'll take the story of Daniel and the lion's den and make it about office politics. Okay, so but we got to do that, though, uh, during the Halloween time. So, well, I, okay, office politics. Uh, I know. We'll, we'll add a vampire theme to the office politics thing and then and then tell people that they need muscle memory during the – you see what I'm saying? If he had just – preached Daniel that he wouldn't be in the mess that he's in and now he's bringing Christ in the incarnation to bear on this mess as if somehow it can rescue what he's done I don't I, I don't even think Christ's incarnation can rescue this sermon Jesus was willing to be demoted on the cross to save you out of devotion for you Daniel was not willing to give up his devotion to preserve or or Fend off the demotion. What will you do to avoid demotion? 
What will you do to fend off the pain of a lost relationship? What will you do to fend off being misunderstood at work? Will you give up God? Will you give up your devotion? Let's pick up in verse 16 of Daniel 6. So here we go. Let me just sum her up. What this means is, man, order yourself privately, devotedly, so that when the pressure comes, you're ready. If you want to deal with office politics, you need to have something that's a bigger politic. You serve the audience of one, not the vampires that surround you. Okay, so it's verse 16. So at last, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. And the king said to him, may your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep at all that night. Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. And when he got there, he called out in anguish. Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you served so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, long live the king. Do you see that? This king was a vampire, even though he was a little conflicted and struggled. <sighs> really? You, you, at the tail end of the story of Daniel in the lion's den, when Daniel is delivered by the one true God, whom this king acknowledged as the one true God, you're going to turn around and make a, a, a dig on him and say, oh, see, he was a vampire. Oh, man. He was sentencing him to his death because of his pride, his ego. And yet Daniel, from the person who was hurting him, gave him honor as an authority person in his life. You're teaching your kids disrespect toward others and rebellion whenever you slam the boss at the dinner table. You got to get under what God has put over you so that one day you can then get over what God has put under you. It's the matrix for authority in life. Daniel got that. And I have not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. You know, I joked about being in student council. No joke, I was. And, and I did the whole thing. And, and I, we used to have these things called lock-ins. And I would go to lock-in, and inevitably we would do this one thing all the time. It was called a trust fall. Okay? They've probably outlawed the trust fall by now <laughs> for legal reasons. But you get up on a chair or whatever and you cross your, and, and people would be behind you and you're like, I trust you. Woo! And they'd catch you. Okay? It was a team building exercise. A team building exercise. Okay? Now, I'm not advocating that you take a trust fall into the arms of God. What I'm advocating is more like a trust jump. A trust jump. Okay, fast forward into another world. <sighs> okay, so I can't do a trust fall. I got to do a trust jump. And a leap of faith, apparently. I, is there any coherent thought that holds this thing that's called a sermon together? I can't find any coherent thought holding any of this together. He's literally just going from one bizarre idea to another and hoping that it all hangs together. This is like this, the sermonic version of throwing oatmeal against the wall. I hope the vampires don't eat it. 
I'm talking about like the rocker who's on the stage raging against the machine and the people are jumping and, and hopping and jump around, jump around, jump around. And he's like, I'm doing this. And then I'm not going to jump on you. Don't worry. <laughs> and he jumps into the arms of those adoring fans and they catch him. And they begin to bounce. And he's like, ah. <laughs> it's amazing. So that's what I want to advocate for you, for me. Not a trust jump like, will he catch me? Will he catch me? Will he catch me? Please. No, no, no. I see you, God. And I'll tell you, man, they're chasing me. They're chasing me. They're slandering me. They're saying all kinds of things. It's embarrassing. I feel alienated. I feel alone. Man, what am I going to do? Where will I turn? How will we make money? What's going to happen? Oh, God, I'm jumping. I'm jumping. And you go into the arms of the one who can hold you. The arms of the one who can preserve your character. The one who can defend you in time. The one who can lift you up and give you a second chance. The one who can redefine you. The one who can make you and mold you. That's God. Don't do a trust fall. Do a trust jump. High into the arms of God. John 14, 1 says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus said this, Trust in God. Trust also in me. Romans 15, 13 says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, trusting God empowers you to confront others with truth. When you trust God, then you're willing to have that hard conversation. Okay, because you serve God more than you serve how they feel about you. And so you realize this is my, my really good friend, my buddy, my coworker, and now I've got to confront, and this friendship could be damaged, but this has to be done, and I'm going to do it with love and gentle and kind. Let's talk. Let's talk. Trusting God empowers you to do that hard conversation. Trusting God emboldens you to do the right thing, even if it costs you dollars in your pocket. Can't do it, guys. Come on, man. Are you kidding? You're costing me money. Do you know the pressure I have at home? Do you know this? Do you know you're costing me money? Dude, you are messing with me. This is, this is just a, a... God, do the right thing. Dude, are you kidding me? Dude, you're the man. You're, you're the one who taught me this. You're the one who showed me how to walk down this path. And now you're pulling the religion card on me. I got to do the right thing. Trusting God allows you, it sharpens you to see the right path. Growing up, this is the verse I memorized as a kid. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll make your path straight. Trusting God just allows, sharpens your path, sharpens your sight. You begin to realize what priorities with us. So here's the question. What is your lion's den? What is your lion's den? What is that? Oh, give me a... Okay, so Mark Patterson, what's your Jericho? Um, what's your lion's den? Uh-huh, yeah. Now we've completely allegorized the Daniel and the lion's den story to the point where it's absurd and makes no sense whatsoever. Hard place that you'll do anything to avoid, even if it means giving up on God, You'll sacrifice your family on the altar of what? 
You'll sacrifice your purity on the altar of approval. You'll give your body to him at homecoming because you don't want to be the girl who hasn't yet. What is your lion's den? What is that hell? Show me your hell. It'll tell me something about your version of heaven. (laughs) Now we've allegorized heaven and hell. You are aware that these are real places and that people will really spend eternity in a real hell. That's a, that is a for real thing that's going to happen to a lot of people. And now what's your hell? Hmm. Yeah. My hell is, well, listening to bad sermons by seeker driven pastors like Brandon Thomas. What's that? What will you do? Do you hear that off in the background? Very soft piano music playing. It's time to cue the sappy music to create the impression that God the Holy Spirit is working his way through the crowd. To protect yourself against the threat of that. I tell you, God wants to make you stronger than that. God wants to give you the backbone of Daniel. God wants to give you the courage of Daniel. God wants you to be able to walk surrounded by enemies, sharp-toothed. Oh, brother. Vampire. What a mess. Pyric enemies. Yeah, you know, lions are now vampires too, you know, because they have sharp teeth. Walk into with confidence and courage. You can walk surrounded, as the Bible says, sitting at the table surrounded by your enemies, and I will be able to feast. You know, God has made you in a special way. You're a creature made by God. Somewhere on your soul, there's a stamp. And it says made by God. <laughs> In China. <laughs> what on earth? And think about you being made by God is if you try to fill yourself up with approval from others, fill yourself up with signs of success, fill yourself up with esteem. Fill yourself up with nonsense, non-biblical, uh, twisted scripture teaching. By your coworkers or your colleagues. Your pastor. You try to fill yourself up with any of that other stuff, security, money in the bank account. You try to fill yourself up with anything else, and it's like taking a sports car that's made for high-octane gasoline, and you put diesel in it. Yeah, that would mess things up. And you go a few hundred yards, and you're... (laughs) You're not made to run like that. Yeah, keep in mind, we're born dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, We're broken uh, badly. We're marred by sin, like beyond all recognition. Um, So your little metaphor doesn't exactly work unless, of course, um, we weren't corrupted by the fall. So you fill yourself up with approval from others. (laughs) You fill yourself up with all these other things because, see, you are made... To only be filled with the purest of fuel. You are made only to be filled with the presence and a relationship with God made possible through Jesus Christ. That's why when some of you listening to my voice right now have found life in Christ, you've asked God to step out of heaven and make his home in your heart. It changed the way you work. (laughs) What? I asked God to step out of heaven and make his home in my heart. When did I do that? What Bible verse teaches this? Why is it that 
you know, evangelicals for the most part have no clue what the Bible says regarding regeneration. And they have all these slogans and phrases that not only are they silly, they can't even be remotely substantiated from the biblical text. Good night. It changed the way that you work. And so I'm thinking about a young professional woman here in our church who's incredibly successful. And she's had coworkers come to her and say, all right, so what's going on? Because you would have had my head on a platter over there and you handle that totally differently. What is going on? What are you on? And can I have some? <laughs> I've had men and their boys come up to them and say, I got a new daddy. What is going on here? They didn't find religion. They got something filled up inside of them that changed the way they relate to others. I want to give you that. I want to offer that to you. So could we just bow our heads and close our eyes? Oh, no. I want to give you a moment. To call upon the name of the Lord. We just talked about how Jesus died for our sins. Yeah, you mentioned that. Could I invite you to accept that gift of new life? Okay, done. Man, nothing he said made any sense. I mean, yeah, there were little gospel elements in there, but the whole thing was convoluted from the word go. I'm, I'm sorry, from the word vampire. Why? Because he's not faithfully preaching the biblical text. He's got another agenda. The agenda is relevance and and showing people that God cares about them where they're at. Yeah, they'd figure that out if you actually preach the biblical text in context. And now we've got all these metaphors and contextualizations literally muddying the clear biblical waters. What a mess. And so at the end of this, people are supposed, you know, they're, okay, Jesus died for my sins, but how did the vampire thing and the, and the muscle memory uh, and the, all, all that, you know, uh, demotion stuff, I don't get any of that. And, why? Because they haven't been taught the clear, easy to understand teaching of the Word of God. I mean, this is like making the Bible like it, make, taking something very clear and making it incomprehensible. Which, by the way, I, I've seen people do that in, in the corporate world. <laughs> Which I think we we could probably draw the analogy that well, the, these big seeker-driven megachurches are really large corporations and franchises anyway, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button, by the way. Yeah, I've run, maxed out my friends. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.